welcome to the Evolution UK podcast. We're bringing together the best industry leaders to talk about the passions and challenges they are facing in the sustainability industry. I am Drew Percival from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and I help business connect with talent. And today, I am your host. I am joined by Christopher Cleveland of Freightliner Group, Claudia Domit noran of Uniparts, and Carl Rigo of London Executive Advisors. Today's topic is the light bulb moment, implementation and rolling out your strategy and plan, and the challenges and barriers you may have had to overcome. Thank you. Could I ask you all to introduce yourselves now, starting with Carl, Claudia, and Chris? Sure. Hi, uh, my name's Carl Rigo. I am, I've got 25 years experience, my whole career has been in the impact space, first as an executive leading transformation, Johnson Johnson, then as an advisor working for His Majesty King Charles when he was Prince of Wales uh, at, at a corporate membership organization, uh, advising on sustainability, and then most recently, um, as an, I'm an investor in the impact and transformation space. I run a company, I've been founder of London Executive Advisors, and we help boards and executive committees and companies simplify complexity and this agenda so that they can grow and make uh, an even greater impact. And clients have included, for me personally over the years, IBM, Coca-Cola, McKinsey, Barclays, Tesco, and the like. Hi, my name is Claudia Domitnuren. I'm currently working for Unipart Logistics, uh, sustainability lead, uh, which is part of the wider Unipart group. As you can probably guess, Unipart Logistics um, organization that provide a range of logistics services to clients, including kind of the standard warehouse and distribution, but also production logistics, repair and refurbishment, and digital technology and customer services. And we operate across a variety of different sectors, including healthcare, aerospace, utilities, consumer, and tech services. And prior to logistics, my background's been 13 years supporting both client and supply chain organizations uh, to help them shift to more sustainable operating models through um, effective sustainability strategies and systems within the transport space. Hello, uh, my name is Chris Cleveland. Uh, I am head of sustainability for Freightliner. Um, my role involves uh, Freightliner's decarbonisation uh, strategy how we respond to the impact of climate change, enhancing ecosystems and biodiversity and environmental stewardship. Um, Freightliner are a rail, road and inland terminals provider. So the movement of goods and products, materials across the United Kingdom itself. Um, been with Freightliner for about 18 months now. And prior to that, I had 10 years experience across environmental health, safety, risk and business continuity roles at National Grid on the gas and electricity side of things thank you everyone um i've taken today's topic and obviously um we're going to focus this in three elements so the first of which um i would like to to understand your experience with is perhaps the light bulb moment carl would you like to start sure i suppose a good example that i have on this is for me, really impactful light bulb moments are those that help the C-suite board and, and executive committee to really understand the nature of the challenge and opportunity that that the 
kind of the, the drive for sustainable inclusive growth represents. So I had a was working with the CEO of one of the leading UK high street banks, and we managed to um, basically get, get that individual to to come along to an immersive experience that we had, where we had other um, leaders in the value chain for that bank. So we had consulting firms, we had energy providers, uh, a variety of companies, payments providers in the, in the in the banking space, come along and really go out to the coalface and see what the need was for financial inclusion in the in the community and uh we went to we went to we had basically brought customers in to talk about their experience of how difficult it was to work with that bank uh and then also we went to community groups to talk about the effects of uh kind of disadvantage on, on just functioning as a human being and then we uh talked about kind of had the companies talk about what they could do with it to do about it and um, at the end of it, the CEO came away uh, with a first-hand experience and said, wow, financial inclusion is about so much more than just getting everybody a bank account. So that sort of aha moment, light bulb moment there led to then that CEO inviting the rest of the C-suite and other business unit heads out to similar immersive events so everyone was on the same page to understand the nature of the transformation they're trying to, to make and kind of look, be inspired by it. And then that cascaded right down to the separate boardroom to kind of uh, shop floor. And, and that was kind of that gave us a lot of momentum to, to lead a nice kind of cultural transformation there where they were talking about what's so what do we want the social purpose of this bank to be? And they made a lot of a positive impact on that. So I think, yeah, that, that's one story about the impact of a light bulb moment on the whole organization. Thank you, Carl. Claudia. Um, it's interesting to hear kind of what Carl had to say. I think um Kind of in terms of these impactful light bulb moments, um, I think it's really important to get, um, yeah, to get your C-suite to really um, see um, the impact and really kind of, in a way, argue for for your case and showcase the uh, the benefits of that. So, um, in my experience, I remember engaging with uh, the vice president of a supply chain organization um, to basically get him and the whole uh, organization on board to start decarbonizing their operations and it was basically through showing the um the financial impact of doing so that really kind of got him on board and got him to kind of engage and endorse this working group that we then set up to help create an action plan to then implement a variety of strategies on the ground so it's very much about showcasing kind of the um, having these aha moments, but also showcasing those uh, business benefits on which you can then uh, build upon um, other initiatives. Thank you. That's great. Christopher, over to you. Of course. So I, I kind of agree with Carl and Claudia. That there is definitely the C-suite engagement needed. I think kind of the light bulb moment for me is kind of almost the the opposite of engaging with the workforce and our people um, and the fabulous, brilliant minds that we have are going to help us to drive the decarbonisation across our business. Um, so, so for me, kind of light bulb moment is is how do you empower, engage, and enable the people to actually make that difference and to have the agility and that vision to respond um, as as much as we have that buy in from the exec and that kind of the need to hit that target, the kind of the income in and the outgoing. It's great. It's data. It's at the boardroom. It's the decision making. But the middle in between of it is definitely got to be our people. And I think that's kind of the light bulb moment for me. Is as much as exec buying, 
and good data and good reporting externally. The, the way to make it happen is definitely that enablement and the empowerment to, to people to, I would say, challenge the norm, be curious, but also not to fear failure. Um, and I think that has been really, really key for me is, is the fear of failure, I think, is a human tendency. It's something that businesses don't necessarily like to kind of face into. But for us in Freightliner and possibly the railway itself, we're going to have to fail at some times to succeed as well, um, just with the kind of the complexity, the ambiguity that we have that hopefully will go into kind of further down uh, the conversation. Um, but we're starting to reap the benefits of great ideas, great solutions um, to definitely that's the light bulb for me as a leader and a coach excellent i find that interesting about successive light bulb moments with new uh, stakeholders as they enter into uh, the awareness of obviously what you're doing uh, claudia i know you wanted to add to this yeah so just thought um just building on what chris said i think kind of engaging your workforce is key because it is ultimately all about the people in terms of the implementation phase of it, but I also recognize particularly kind of where we currently are. I think one of our challenges is um, we need to be able to fail and fail fast to find the right solutions. Um, but again, in this day and age with kind of the rise of greenwashing and customers and consumers being aware of it, I think organizations are increasingly becoming nervous about failing because to so that they're not then called out for greenwashing, green hushing, and all of these various other kind of misclaims for want of a better word. So I think there's a real challenge for sustainability professionals to kind of kind of balance that of, you know, making valid claims externally, but also being okay with failing um, as well and being comfortable to also um, basically communicate that out as well. That's great to know. Carl, did you want to add? Yes, I did. So I agree with that. I think what I see, I do a lot of work at, at FTSE board level and, ex, and executive committee level. And what I see there is, yes, there, there is definitely a feel of fear of failure. I think part of it is driven by this, this, the level of complexity in the space. There's so many new regulations always coming out. And when I talk to the non-exec directors and the fellow networking groups that, that, I, that I'm in, you know, the challenge is, well, there's so much of it that it, it can sometimes take up a lot of the oxygen in the room. So I say boards do three things, right? They focus on strategy, performance, and governance. The performance they delegate out to the executive committee, right? Well, so absolutely, the 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 climate sustainability agenda is is a big part of that. When when the discussion gets predominantly focused on the compliance and regulatory side of things, it takes a lot of the momentum out of the room. And when people are in fear, they're not it's, they're not at their best in terms of having access to their, their best creative faculties and things. So it creates a certain sort of response. Uh, well, we don't want to make a mistake, so we'll do the minimum. Whereas in reality, you know, Bank of England executive directors and other are calling call or others are calling for companies to, to be bold and take take make big decisions, you know, uh, take take bold action. So when I work with companies, some of the how we get them unblocked from that is helping them understand whether you're using a systems thinking or some sort of a simple model to say, here's conceptually what we're trying to achieve. Don't worry about all the individual regs right now. What we're trying to do is make sure that any commitment our company makes is aligned to the, the regulations from the, the Paris Agreement 2015, 2016. That's conceptually what we're trying to do. And that's now being cascaded down country by country. So big picture, that's where we're trying to go. And that once you kind of you know companies understand it, help individuals understand it in a simple way, they feel empowered to then take action on it. 
I think and the other, the other comment I would make is there's a need in companies at board level, it all flows from, from board neck to level. Um, NCI did a study uh, a year or two ago when they said at board, in company boards, there's a challenge. If you look at Venn diagram, there's two circles on the left, which are sustainability experts, and on the right are commercial business people. And the two circles don't really overlap in terms of how many executives have both sets of experience or can they have a shared common conversation. So that's part of the challenge. I think a lot of the work that I do is about crafting narratives that are that bring people to the simplicity on the far side of complexity so that they're back at choice rather than being afraid to make a mistake. So you work on the communication aspect and, and, and the channeling of that through from the different parties and stakeholders. That's quite interesting when we look at the aspect of where compliance from a talent point of view is most people will um, bow or refer to a subject matter expert when it comes in to conversation of compliance or things like that. They won't want to comment. So, um, the fact that you bring that out, it slows the motor motivation in the room down. I could easily see that happening on there. Uh, before we move on to our next question, would anyone like to add any more comments to this area? Do you think uh, you've covered concept? I think we've had some good points over um, the light bulb moment at C-Suite, but then the success, successive light bulb moments through the rest of the people as they enter the program from uh, Chris and also Claudia mentioning that through different key stakeholders and obviously looking at the communication um, around too. Everyone happy? Thank you. So the next part of our podcast is really to look at implementing um, your strategy, your program, and how you go about doing that. You've had the moment now with your C-suite or with your key stakeholder team to make them aware that light bulb moment you flip those switches you've got that buy-in let's talk about how we are implementing and rolling out your strategy and goals claudia can i ask you to open of course happy to um i think the key bit as i think as i mentioned kind of in, in the previous section is getting the right people on board and making sure you have the right stakeholders um, engage, whether it's, you know, your HR, your procurement, your commercial function, um, and getting getting their buy-in, getting them um, excited about it. And really then, um, kind of in my experience, it's working with the existing processes that are there within the business and seeing how you can build on that to then implement your, um, the, the strategy. I mean, um, for example, back when I was uh, working for a railway supplier, I was leading on the uh, modern slavery piece. And we got to the point where um, we kind of done all the internal due diligence checks, but actually the key bit was um, our supply chain and the transparency of that and you know where we're sourcing things. But actually it turned out that um, with the industry being the way it is, and I think with most industries as well, everyone is each other's supplier and there's kind of, there's so many um, interconnected sections so that actually in the end, I managed to um, work with the railway membership organization to get um, pan-industry stakeholders on board to create a working group to actually look at supply chain transparency at a railway industry level. And that resulted in us creating a guide and actually um, changing um, the assurance system to enable a greater level of transparency around modern slavery risk. So it was really very much around making sure the right um, stakeholders were in the room, teeing up the right people. And also, um, I think, crucially showcasing that by getting engaged in this, in the implementation of this initiative, it would actually help them 
in their day-to-day work as well. Thank you, Claudia. Um, Christopher, over to you. So, so to roll out the strategy um, is for us is is having that vision and having the end goal of almost that north star for the targets. Um, but it, it's got to be built with the agility and the flex for us in the in the railway. Um, a focus massively for the strategy is innovation. That we don't have the answers and we don't know what the final solution looks like for rail, future locomotives, um, and the whole piece there. It is one field of ambiguity, that complexity, and even decisions to be made across the industry. So right now we have a multitude of different work streams, different alternative fuels, different types of technology that we are for the test purposes, spinning plates and tossing fire to test um, what's going to work. But when something new comes out or something's available, it's in how we respond to that and how does that fit into the plan to have that material difference um, for us. So, so for, for me adaptability in our plan and the rollout is really 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 key that we can't just focus on one one area one topic um but what's really key for me is recognize that interdependency and i'm kind of picking up on claudia's piece there that what we do for decarbonization can support with the response to the impacts of climate change what we do there can then support nature and kind of improving nature and ecosystems themselves but also then given us a good foundation of societal benefits as well um, and kind of how do we bring that into the forefront of our strategy that by doing good here it also has good further down the lines as well um, and supporters that could be from stem so engineering and supporting our engineering um, and knowing that we're going to have a gap and a skills gap in engineering across the uk how do we play our part and has the decarbonization future locos what does the railway look like and how do we inspire the next generation? All of that has to come together as part of the plan. But no, that goes and sits off into HR. That might go into our commercial team, into our finance team as well. Um, it's kind of really the forefront and the focus for our strategy. Uh, Christopher, am I right in saying that you, you're actually in the play of a very large mid-long-term strategy where you are? Um, in in that sense, you know, deciding what fuels the, those types of things is our multi. It is. It, it is the, the the UK government has made a statement that isn't yet in statutory instrument that by twenty forty there'll be no diesel locomotives in the UK, um, which is bold. That's brilliant from a decarbonisation perspective because the vast majority of the UK runs on diesel. The railway that's going to be thirty eight percent of the UK is electrified right now. And we don't have the clear clarity of what does that future look like for us. Um, so we're kind of looking at 2050 and, and working backwards to say, well, 2040 is no diesel. We've got 17 years to make a decision. Big assets, big capex, and we've got to choose the right fuel. I know the infrastructure is going to be there as well. So we are reliant on many different parties across the UK, both upstream and downstream, to give us that support, really, ultimately. So it's a portfolio of strategies really in place across. Yeah. It, it, it is true. It's absolutely spot on. I think they, one will lead to the next and to the next and to the next. And if one falls out, it's going back. And how do we restart and look at that? And we have to have these across, across our business um, to be able to respond um, to our customers, to the big organizations that are using us to move those goods and materials around the country that have their own internal and externally kind of promoted targets. 
and how do we support them as our, as their scope free transportation? Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. Carl, would you like to join us? Yes, I would say, start by saying that when it comes to implementation, complexity is the enemy of execution, right? So we should, as Christopher said, kind of begin with the end in mind, have a clear vision. And so, for example, I'm a big, big fan of having a clear through line from board to exco on down to to kind of the, the line. So, for example, what that looks like is you look at the the TCFD ISSB different requirements around um, the the climate related impacts on a business and the business the, the impacts of the business on climate and people. You look at the company starts by doing scenario planning. If you, I guess I guess what I'm saying is when you're implementing a, a, a set of changes, it's good to bear in mind where that comes from. So, for many companies, many large businesses right now. They'll be doing scenario planning, looking at the three main scenarios that came from the central banks, for example, you know, orderly and disorderly transitions over the years, right? And then when they do that scenario plan, they look at what does what is what are the implications of this for us as a company? And when they look at those implications, they then need to put a management action plan in place with a set of interventions to to move the needle on that. And then they need to report on their progress against that, right? So many sustainability initiatives will kind of be in that track. That will be the the way they'll cascade down. So it's important as you're going through the, have a successful implementation. It's important to to bear that in mind, engage the stakeholders, as Claudia said, and then let everyone know all the kind of mid level managers and even those lower in the hierarchy know that why they're doing what they're doing, the upstream and downstream implications of what they're doing. So, for example, if they're if if a company is if a construction firm is looking into biodiversity or biodiversity offsetting, they look at the impact of the, the buildings that they're that they're constructing, uh, it's helpful for them to capture information so that they can tell that story as part of their reporting, feed it up the chain to say, actually, here's how we're making a difference uh, to, to make our portfolio potentially more adaptable. Kind of what is the what is the overall narrative of, of, of the implications of what we're doing and why? So just having that through line is really important because it can, it can easily lose, the threat can be lost during handovers. The other thing I would say just conceptually as a, as a transformation and change guy is that when you're leading any, any, executing any successful change program, there are two main areas that you must get right. And that is decision rights and information flow. So, and this has been proven, you know, all the strategy and ops uh, consultancy firms say, you know, everyone has a good idea of the decisions and actions for which they are responsible and important information about the, the landscape gets headquarters, gets to the, gets headquarters quickly, you know, uh, things like that. Once made, decisions are rarely second guessed. People have buy in. Information flows freely across organizational boundaries. Those are kind of um, change program agnostic. No matter what change program you're doing, you got to get those basics right. And the other two factors that follow after that are the incentives and objectives and things, and then the structure that you may put in place to deliver it. So those are some keys to implementation. From where I said the other thing I would say, sorry, is final, final point is, uh, and this would just relate to the next section. Um, you know, remember, let's bear in mind the change equation, right? People and organizations change when three three factors are in place, when the dissatisfaction with the present plus the attractiveness of the future vision plus knowledge of first practical steps. And those three things together are, are greater than the perceived cost of making the change, then change happens. If any of the, if, if that, if that equation or that uh, inequality is not met, then the change won't happen. So if you see something getting stuck, which we'll talk about later, chances are for that particular individual or department, 
those factors are not being met. Oh, that's interesting, especially the last bit. It looks as if your strategies and plans actually account for change awareness or change preparation within an organization, as well as taking them through the change. Um, that's that's quite an interesting go-deeper aspect uh, on, on that particular side. Fantastic. Uh, Christopher, I know you fancied adding something perhaps from delivering into or a customer viewpoint when taking a strategy not only internally, but um, driving that through into a customer? Yes, and, and I think it's that's the challenge, and it's kind of the, that value chain itself. Um, for us as Freightliner, we support many different customers, hundreds at times of different customers, all different sizes and all different needs. And and the, the challenge for us and the solution there is how do we have a core deliverable that meets our customers' needs? And the only real solution that I've found works is engagement and talking to our customers and stakeholders to understand their needs, but also knowing that they have their own parent company and group companies. So kind of what's their targets, what's their viewpoints, and then how do we deliver and respond and adapt to their needs uh, and i think yeah, and it's one of the barriers and the challenges that i have is is the data uh, and the desire for data different cuts of data different stakeholders and customers needs um with no i'd say consistency there so therefore it's that response of customers needs and then having to be specific because there are certain data sets or reporting requirements needed that need to feed into it as well and i, and I think that's that's probably the biggest challenge that we have of how do we satisfy our customers' needs, satisfying our internal targets, and also our investors to ultimately turn a profit, make a profit, but having to spin all those plates of all those needs to have us have something there that's going to satisfy everybody. But equally, it may not be able to satisfy everybody. So then what's the lesser of the evils of what do we compromise and give? Um, yeah, that's the challenge. Perfect. Before we go into our final point on challenges, I know Claudia would like to ask uh, add from a, uh, a customer-centric as well. Claudia? Thank you, Drew. Um, I think just um, to Christopher's point as well, I think there's um, kind of almost a, um, not a requirement, but a consideration from a, from clients as well to make sure that um, the data requirements as, are as easy as possible on the supply chain. I think that then speaks to kind of this greater collaboration and really speaking to the supply chain, engaging the supply chain as early as possible, because maybe then you can't get the perfect data set that you need, but you can get 99 or 98% and that should be sufficient. And that's, I think, where also cross-industry collaboration comes into play, particularly when you're looking at engaging the supply chain, because again, a supplier will be the same possibly for rail as it will be for road, as it will be for automotive. And actually, having a unified approach um, should and, and will help break them. That's where all these different reporting standards come into play as well. And then the flip side of that is making sure that there's a balance in terms of how many standards you subscribe to and you're, you're required to, to report against, but definitely kind of that engagement and collab collaboration piece, because ultimately we're all after the same thing, um, even purely from a, you know, decarbonization and net zero point of view, we all want to decarbonize. Uh, we all want to, to be done in a just way so it's in everyone's benefit to find the simplest and quickest way forward thank you thank you for adding to that christopher um you you'd started talking about 
challenges. Um, would you like to uh, perhaps cover some of the challenges and um, that you've had to overcome? Yes, of course. So, so kind of for me, challenges is clarity of what does the future look like um, uh, and where where is investment ultimately going to be made uh, based on the, the alternative fuel types traction needed. Um, that ultimately comes from, from government and the direction of decarbonisation for the government as well. Um, I think finance and investment is always going to be, be the key of the payback um, that we need as a business and balancing decarbonisation investors need some profit and getting that sweet spot of what I would say is lower carbon, lower cost. And I think there are opportunities still there for a lower carbon, lower cost, but then when's it going to cost more to decarbonize and that appetite then to kind of hit the bottom line. And what I'd say is it's scope free as well as a big challenge. And that's not for reporting and data, but actually it's that drive forward. So, vast majority of our customers we are their scope free many have scope one scope two commitments but no scope three commitments so the the challenge comes of how do we decarbonize as a business and pass that cost through to our customers for using alternative fuels that are going to have reduction of x y and z in there as well and making sure that kind of value chains there at the moment the real focus i think is on scope one scope two and scope three is getting left behind and i'm just hoping that's going to mature to help us decarbonize through that end-to-end as well thank you for sharing claudia would you like to add yes thank you i think um definitely speaking to christopher challenge around um investment kind of who who pays and and when really um because i think particularly also when you think about kind of SBTI and having signed up for, you know, net zero targets and everything, you know, it's it's all well and good how you set up for it. And then at some point there will be this, I guess, a light bulb moment within the organization of, oh my God, we actually have to do this. And oh my God, it's not just, it won't only be monetary savings. We are actually going to have to invest into it as well. Um, so that kind of realization um needs to kind of be managed that's one of the key i think um bears as well but also um because you know to embed any kind of sustainability initiative you have to work cross-functionally to do so but all these functions have their own day jobs to do so it's also about showcasing how this initiative um, will help them in their kind of day-to-day jobs and, and help them so without doing that i think the initiative any initiative um won't be um, successful. And I think from that point of view, kind of from a sustainability professional point of view, you need to have a lot of patience and ability to change tack to be able to then get the right people on board. You might not necessarily get them from day one, but hopefully by day 10, you'll do that. And then I guess my final point is also this urgency, you know, this urgency to decarbonize, um, kind of translating that into the business because a lot of people go, oh my God, it's, you know, it's too big, it's too complicated and kind of shut down and go, we can't do this. But actually it's kind of giving, like breaking it down into manageable chunks for the relevant functions so that actually we can decarbonize or, you know, any other sustainability initiative can implement it successfully and to the timescales we need to. Oh, thank you for adding. Carl, would you like to join us with some comments? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, okay. So I would say just picking up on some of the 
conversation that just preceded me. You know, outcome targets are great. Many companies have outcome targets that say we're going to be, you know, net zero by 2050, 2035. What really helps prevent the almost the sticker shock moment is having not just outcome, have big outcome targets, great, then having process targets that say, okay, an interim milestone. So if we're going to be net zero by 2050 or 2035, that then means how we're doing that. Well, we're actually going to be looking at switching to renewables. We're going to be looking at migrating our fleet. And these things have to happen way before that, right? So that that's one thing. The the other thing I would say, this is kind of near and dear to my heart, is and I can I can sympathize with sustainability practitioners um having done a lot of that work and worked with a lot of them and and kind of their the boards and excos that, that they're working with. You know, yeah, we have to assess when we're leading a change like in sustainability, do we do we have a mandate or a mantra? Very different playbook. If you have a mandate for change, you've got top-down agreement, you've got resources, you've got budget, you've got people's time, you've got that, right? That's a mandate, and that cascades throughout the organization, okay? If you've got a mantra, which is, yeah, we're going to do something, the board says, our expert says, yeah, we're going to do something on this, yeah, well, we're going to be uh, we're going to be net zero by 2050, 2040, whichever time they, they talk about. Then you don't hear much about it. After that, you've got a mantra, not a mandate, and that's a very different playbook in order to lead change successfully. The playbook, when you have a mantra, it's down to relationships, it's down to shared incentives, it's down to who else is uh, motivated and galvanized in the organization to do what we're doing. So, for example, when I was in a leading an advisory team on this subject in, in an organization with 350 people, lots of different uh, subdivisions and lots of different silos. You know, we had a, we had, on the one hand, we were told, yes, uh, let's go, let's go make our clients much more sustainable. Uh, and work together as a team, as as cross functions. On the other hand, we were told everyone has their own individual budget. Okay, so everyone, it was every man, woman, and child for themselves fighting for budget. So we had a mantra there. That means we weren't really incentivized to go to market together. So what we did was we we, we leaned on our organizational relationships and found the one other team in the organization that was incentivized to go to market with a joined up offer rather than their own individual product or service, and that was our comms and, and digital team. So we went to them and said, okay, we're going to jointly we're going to jointly work with these big. Uh, FMCG and, and banking institutions to come up with a solution for them. That's not piecemeal because that's not what they want. They want us to be joined up. So uh, that was it. It's down to relationships and habit where we had shared incentives. Every other team was trying to kind of build their own, win their own sales on their own services without thinking about how they could be part of a wider solution that serves a bigger problem for clients. Okay. So that's, that's one thing I'd say. And then the other kind of final comment I would say, well, okay, I guess the big thing is. When you're dealing with that middle management level layer, permafrost layer, who's middle managers are too busy to, to, to deal with these highfalutin visions from the board. And then they've got pressure from below from their, their staff and gen, gen Z and millennials and things. You know, the, the key there is if you don't have, this is back to how much buying have you got. If you don't have shared objectives for the delivery of these initiatives, you're going to, you're going to have some friction, right? So what does that mean? So if, if you're a special project team leading uh, trying to, to uh, reduce carbon in your supply chain. If your other stakeholders in the finance team, maybe customer service, the supply chain team, you know, ops teams, if they're not, if they don't have at least 10, 15 percent, 20 percent of their annual performance appraisal ba- being based on helping you achieve those aims, you may not get there, right? So organizations talk a good game, but if they don't have shared objectives, that I've seen that happen where we went from one year to the next, 2022 to 2023. It was like it was like a magic epiphany where in 2022 it wasn't in anyone's objectives in this one company, and then when 2023 hit and all the executives knew they needed they had 10 percent not just execs but up and down the chain, they were being going to be assessed on their 
the success of this overall project, even if they're the customer service director, they had 10 to 15% of their bonus was based on helping the sustainability team achieve their objectives. Then people showed up to meetings and things happened. If you don't have that, you've got a mantra and you're down to just managing your relationship. I like the idea about bonus structure and tying Carl. There's nothing that commits a member of a person when they're remunerated against a target to achieve it. I think that's a, a great point to do. Does anyone all feel they could add from perhaps um, the people aspect to the barriers that they're, they're having when implementing their strategy across a business? I, I, I think it's kind of Carl's absolutely spot on. I think it's the objectives. Yep. And the drivers, um, and something that kind of I've learned, I guess, and learned it the hard way, but it's kind of appreciate others' objectives as well, or kind of what's the competing elements um, of knowing what the financial objectives are, what the commercial, what the procurement objectives are, and, and the role that I play in those as well, and that kind of cross-ownership rather than sitting there and saying, I have a series of objectives, they're the most important thing, and everybody should be bestowed those because my good, healthy ego is saying it's the most important thing. But actually, how do I have empathize and go, what's the competing? What the competing is it? Or the challenges that the business is then having to flex and have that strain to that has a kind of a positive impact that also but may bring its challenges and and friction at times. Um and, and it's very much of the experience that I've had as well. I call it the layer cake effect of where I've actually squished as a meal manager and feeding that right now, kind of from the top and the bottom. And the cream and the jam in the middle goes and it's what's the most important things and that becomes down to a target a bonus ultimately as people strive for that and integrating that into sustainability and i think that shadow of the leader cascades down into people if there's commitment and they hear it from the top and that hear it from the kind of the layers coming down and it's important you're celebrating the successes and kind of reaching out and communicating that, I think that starts to build the heart of sustainability into a business, that it becomes the decision-making element of people that are thinking not just what does it mean for finance, what does it mean for our customer, stakeholder, actually what does it mean for the longer term of, of environment, sustainability, ESG, however you bundle it up. Fantastic. Claudia, I know you wanted to add on this subject. Yes, just kind of tying into what Carl and Christopher were saying, I think, um, it's a lot around kind of getting the right culture in the organizations all to foster the kind of the buy-in and improving the processes, et cetera. And I know, for example, at the moment at Unipart, we have this um, approach called Unipart Way. And it's basically, it, it's it's a way of doing things. It's a culture, but it's underpinned by tools and processes. So actually anyone within the organization, whether you're, you know, the CEO or, or someone on the shop floor has access to this to be able to basically, when they find a problem, have a toolkit to find a solution. And through that, we've managed to realize quite a few uh, resource efficiencies, including kind of um, car reducing our carbon emissions. It's really very much, you need to, I think one of the pieces of the puzzle that we might not have touched on as much is equipping people with the right tools to be able to achieve the visions and the strategies and objectives um, that we we set, whether it's for our team or for the organization as a whole. Perfect. Um, Chris, did you want to add anything? I was just more curious, Claudia, kind of the kind of hierarchy 
and kind of status that exists within business and kind of your words there is that kind of with good governance and good controls is that is that kind of desire to remove that need for hierarchy and be able to respond in the moment to get an outcome rather than kind of seeing it go to a manager or to a supervisor to a first line manager to a manager to a leader to a head of to make a decision to come back down Yes, that's pretty much it. Basically, you're instilling ownership within every member of staff to be able to solve a problem, to basically take away that hierarchy that might take add another six months to a relatively simple solution, for example. Yeah. And it's incredibly effective. Absolutely. I think the, the agility and to be able to respond in the moment, it, I think, is so key in sustainability um, rather than waiting for those that lead, those that do probably the closest to the kind of cold face so to speak and therefore they've got the best knowledge experience and skills to make those decisions and ultimately do the right thing and i think that's what i feel is trusting people ultimately they they, they come to do a good job they're proud of their job and therefore that culture element of instilling trust to make a good decision knowing that people aren't coming to make that bad decision or make a bad goal because they want the good for the business they take pride in their work that sounds really powerful Hundred percent. Thank you, Carl. You wanted to add? Yes, one of my favorite quotes, I believe, is Peter Drucker. He says, "Culture will lead strategy for breakfast." So, one hundred percent. The and from my perspective, what is culture? Culture is quote the way we do things around here, right? It's the underlying unconscious assumptions people have, the beliefs they the beliefs they espouse, and the behaviors, and then the kind of what they call artifacts in the organization. The tone of voice of the of the sign hanging above the copy machine or whatever, right? And without without the, I always say, um, uh, you know, how how do we really lead change and transformation? Um, Gandhi said it best. You know, we must be the change we want to see, right? And with sustainability and with companies that are many companies are evolving in this area. Uh, you know, they, they've got a certain set of organizational values that ideally they live by. You know, they're they walk their talk and then as other companies, as, as they get good at this stuff, they then need to talk their walk and let people know what they're doing. So let me, let me, um, just say something in, in the spirit of kind of culture and the human element of things. Um, back to the change equation, uh, is a statement that, you know, all progress requires change, but not all change is progress. So people, human beings inherently, intuitively or instinctively resist change. Okay. And why, why does that happen? Because um, it's been said that, that the ego cannot tell the difference between transformation and annihilation. Change involves uncertainty and perhaps pain, and therefore some fear and anxiety are to be expected. So we must be supportive of people as you go through this process, right? So um, I would just say, culturally, do we have the sort of culture that, do we have the sort of leaders who are leading in such a way that they're creating space for people to raise their views on things? They're, they're actually taking feedback. They're giving people the safe space to to a sandbox to play with to test out the new tools and the new ways of working, right? All those things. Are they really embodying it? And, and do they have a self-reinforcing culture? All high-performance teams have a self-reinforcing culture where they can coach each other and call each other out on, uh, you know, if performance needs to be improved. I'll give one, one quick example of this. I was working with um, uh, an aviation business and the the environment team was was um, leading a sustainability initiative. And they were a little bit upset that some of the senior team members were not engaging and weren't really walking the talk. 
So they, uh, the environment team, they had a nice leadership retreat and they had one of their sponsors, uh, okay at this with them. So they had all those senior execs came to a, an offsite retreat. And as everyone walked in the room, the environment uh, lead handed everyone a small envelope and, and just don't open it yet. So they, everyone said, like, you know, 10 executives around the table, they all get a little envelope. And then as they're going through the meeting, they said, okay, open it up. And in each envelope was on a piece of paper, unfold it. And the size was a paper, it was a, a footprint, a picture of a footprint on paper. And the size of the footprint was proportional to the size of the carbon emissions that uh, uh, the mode of travel of each executive took to get to that meeting. So they were kind of you know, being a little creative, being a little fun and show and, and kind of holding people accountable. This actually, now you're here amongst your peers. When, when are we going to step up? So I think that's a fun example of how you can kind of create this sort of culture. But for me, I'm a coach, right? Coaching is about two things. First, we raise awareness and then people can take responsibility. That's what it's about. I, I find that hum um, amusing to think um, the size of one's engine, but it's actually a proven point, isn't it? To, to make them realize and, uh, uh, I can only think of a certain politician and his two jacks, uh, as he was named, if he would be at that table. Um, and I thank everyone. I think, you know, as we look into the final ends of this session, and given the grounds that we've discussed, which is obviously the light bulb moment, implementation, and then the barriers that we're overcoming, I think it'd be prudent that we end on perhaps asking you each your top tips to offer to someone who is literally looking to implement their next sustainability project or strategy at this moment. Um, Claudia, may we ask you? Sure. So um, I think first thing with your with anyone's sustainability initiative, have a plan, but be prepared to be flexible around it because things change. Um, also, persevere and be ready to change tack if it you know if your first approach doesn't succeed try try again and last but not least although it probably should have been the first point in this is listen is listen to this to your stakeholders to the people you want to engage um so that as a minimum you know how to hook in your sustainability initiative into what they're doing but also it might give you food for thought in terms of changing your initiative or any other initiatives moving forward Thank you. Carl, would you like to add? Yes, I would say uh, keep it simple. Speak in the language that your stakeholders will understand rather than the language of practitioners and specialists. It is incumbent on us as specialists in this space to translate it into language, as Claudia said, that makes sense for the functions and uh, geographies that we're, we're liaising with. And one thing, and then one of the, one of the freebie tip I, I would say, which is one of my favorites in, in leading change is at the beginning of the exercise, do a nice internal stakeholder mapping, uh, process where you actually look in and look at who are the main stakeholders internally and what's their degree of support and degree of influence for this project and track that. Right. And then you can almost run a playbook off of that. So if you've got the ear of the CFO, but not the CEO, and you don't have the year of the middle managers in supply chain, you can kind of look at the lay of the land and see who's red, amber, green in terms of uh, the support and, uh, for your agenda. And you can use the greens to influence the, the ambers, right, and kind of create that sort of tipping point that you need. But, but that can be game-changing and transformational. Work with your sponsors even on doing that sort of thing can really help you 
alleviate and avoid challenges before they crop up by having the proverbial important meeting before the meeting when you approach individuals before you approach them in a group setting. I think that's interesting, especially with the traffic lights uh, assessment at the end. It's not one message for all. It's fitting the message for the individual uh, in, in, in that sense. Christopher, would you like to add um, with any top tips from your side? Yeah, of course. So I fully agree with Claudia and, and Carl and kind of been scrubbing off the kind of the, the topics there. I guess for me, the, the, the three that I would say is be curious um, as a person to understand the business stakeholders um and not necessarily go in with preconceived ideas and kind of the what if in a very uh, i'll say polite but just kind of want to explore it um something for me is a great lean principle is go look see actually go to the heart of the business and see what's happening um we can't be at our desks all the time sustainability professionals we've got to go out and get the heart see it taste it smell it actually have what truly happens in a business um and the last one is that resilience part of us as professionals um, and our well-being, it's tough out there as a sustainability professional. We're not always going to succeed. We're going to get pushbacks. We're going to suffer from eco-anxiety at times and go overwhelmed by it as well. And the topics, the plate spinning, the people we've got to lead. Um, and it's always to think about yourself and how you respond to that change um, as professionals and, and know that there are great people out there their support out there and if you know the triggers of how you look after yourself for it as well fantastic i specifically like a couple of points you raised over there the go look see and obviously resilience on that side and preparation for it wonderful to hear before we end the podcast i'd like to say thanks so much to all our guests sharing their thoughts in today's conversation once again, our guests today on the podcast have been Christopher Cleveland, Head of Sustainability at Freightliner Group, Claudia Domit Naran, Sustainability Lead at Uniparts, and Carl Rigo, Chairman of London Executive Advisors. If you're hiring for new sustainability roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you know anyone who would like to be featured on our future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Drew Percival, and you can find me on LinkedIn or email at drew.percival at evolutionjobs.co.uk. Thanks to all our guests, and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.